If you were here this morning, um, these issues have already been raised um, around water and infrastructure. Tony Blair talked about donors needing to better organize themselves to invest in infrastructure. And if you heard Administrator Green's uh, armchair discussion, he talked about, I was so happy he did this, but his example um, talking about what does kind of resilience look like or that journey to self-reliance was about Ethiopia and the request or need for irrigation support over food aid. And I thought that was just a really nice setup that wasn't planned to go into our session. So our conversation today, we're going to do a deep dive and talk about the current state of the world's water infrastructure and water. Uh, we are going to zero in particularly on urban settings. This ties directly to goal number six of the sustainable development goals. It aims to achieve, which that goal aims to achieve universal and equitable access to safe and affordable water. All of those words are really important there. All by, for all, by 2030. Uh, I don't know about you, but from what I can see is if we continue down the current development path, I don't think we're going to get there. I want to first take a minute to acknowledge and thank Commonics International. They sponsored this panel. They're a very thoughtful partner, and I'm very happy that they wanted to drive a conversation and dialogue today around water. I've been directing work here at CSIS for four years. This week is my four-year anniversary. And the work that we do in food security looks at how we can strengthen agricultural development and nutrition investments to reduce hunger, build resilience, improve malnutrition. And water has surfaced up, that was not planned, <laughs> has surfaced as a critical resource to global food and nutrition security. And water is running out, as, you as I'm sure many of you know. When I look at global food security and the rising hunger trends that we have today, there's a couple of major factors that I'm thinking about. One is climate change, another is urbanization. And both of those issues tie directly to water scarcity and water, water efficiency. So as we know with the growing population, the demand is increasing, but the supply is being stretched. For those that work in the food security space like I do are going to be pretty familiar that last month the Chicago Council on Global Affairs released a report on managing water for a nutritious food, food future. If any of you take notes, I have to take notes when I'm at an event or it doesn't sink in. If you take notes and you're interested in this report, just Google Chicago Council and from scarcity to security. That's the name of the report. And in this report, it emphasizes that water has become increasingly stressed and that water management does it demands immediate attention. It talks about how water is critical to agricultural production. And, and if, you, if you don't know, in our current food system, our, our agriculture production takes about 70% of the world's fresh water. There's an increasing competition for water, it points out, particularly between cities and rural areas. Um, this urbanization issue, I mean, by 2050, we expect that 70% of the world's population is going to be in urban settings. I'm not going to throw any more big statistics or global numbers because I know the experts on the panel can help lay out that landscape for us. So let's talk about who we have today. I'm going to quickly go through introductions. First, we have Jeff Goldberg, who is the Acting Director for the Office of Water at USAID. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Jeff works on water and sanitation-related foreign assistance. He helps manage about $400 million annually of American tax dollars that go to these investments. 
And he, more importantly, which I know we'll dive into, he leads the implementation of USAID's water and development strategy under the whole of government global water strategy. Um, we also have Michael Ashford. Michael is with the director of Commonics International's water, energy, and sustainable cities practice. He has over 20 years of experience in this area. He currently works on the financial sustainability of infrastructure development, but he also has past experience with clean technology startups, which is something we can talk about when we get into private sector's role in this. Dr. Annie Fury is a behavioral health scientist, but she's also the co-founder and CEO of MWater, which is a tech startup. I'm sure she'll describe it better than me, but I'll tell you that it's a free management operation system that maps and monitors critical points of infrastructure along water resources, including sanitation facilities and healthcare facilities. And then we have Sergio Campos at the end. He's the head of water and sanitation at the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, his portfolio includes looking at drinking water, water and sanitation, water resource management, and solid waste. He focuses specifically on the Latin America and Caribbean area, and he'll give us some good country and regional examples of how water is related to the region's economy there. So we're going to start with you, Jeff. And before I turn to you, I, I just want to challenge the panel today. I know you have your talking points and you came to get specific things across and that's what we want, right? We've talked about that in our coordination call. But I want to encourage you to challenge each other, to think about what you're talking about and how that relates to what the others are saying, and be a bit bold. If you come up with some ideas or thoughts that are in the moment from this conversation, don't be afraid to share, don't be afraid to disagree. It makes for a much more fun panel. So Jeff, to start with you, this morning Ambassador Green talked about the new policy framework and I'd like to hear how you see water and infrastructure fitting into this new strategy. Great, thanks Kim. And just wanna kick off and just uh, thank CSIS for putting this um, event on and um, to Comonix for the specific panel on water. It's really great to be here um, to be able to talk about everything that USAID and the US government is doing um, on drinking water and sanitation and water issues writ large, uh, joined by an interagency colleague here in the audience as well. Um, so I'll just do a little bit of quick framing. Um, so Ambassador Green this morning talked a lot about the, the journey to self-reliance and that the orientation of all U.S. foreign assistance moving forward um, needs to be organized around that principle of working ourselves out of a job. And um, it's not a new concept or idea, but it is a very nice organizing principle in that it really does push us as development professionals to, to think about how we're approaching um, sector-specific <laughs> issues like water. And so I don't want to get too far into the details of um, stats and kind of technical issues, but I do think it is helpful to just lay out the context that we're operating in. And so water in terms of self-reliance is absolutely fundamental in that it is a cross-cutting development issue. We know that it, it prevents disease, improves economic growth, um, is critical to resilience, to shocks and stresses, um, and importantly, most importantly, contributes to the empowerment of women and girls. So as far as self-reliance goes, if we're not getting water and sanitation right, it's quite challenging to uh, envision that day where there is no longer need for assistance. Um, Kimberly laid out that we are operating in a context where water is increasingly stressed. The Chicago Council report um, that just came out last month uh, does note that 1.2 billion people 
uh, live in areas of physical water stress, and we're seeing increasing demands for water resources across agriculture, industry, uh, and domestic water use, all in the context of dwindling supply. Um, and this has huge economic consequences. Um, there have been a lot of costing analyses that have been undertaken um, by our colleagues at the World Bank. Uh, high and dry report that they came out with last year noted that we could see GDP decreasing anywhere between 6 to 15 percent in some contexts as a result of water stress, um, which stands to compound state fragility and conflict. So this is, from a broad resource-based issue, a huge imperative no matter what sector um, we're operating in, whether it's agriculture, industry, or WASH. Juxtaposed to that, we know that significant access, or significant portions of the population still lack access to safe drinking water and sanitation and that those needs are most acute in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. And so um, there are large problems of equity of access and kind of in keeping with the theme of this panel, the agency's historical investments have largely um, predominantly been in rural areas, but we know that um, urbanization is a major trend, and this is something that we are increasingly factoring into our strategic framework, which I'll talk about a little bit more moving forward. And then lastly, I think just the theme of the panel um, and a dinner that we had last night on the topic of infrastructure, there are major questions in terms of how we should be facilitating access to drinking water and sanitation. Um, we do spend, as uh, the development agency of the United States, $435 million a year on drinking water and sanitation, but relative to the global needs, um, that really is just a very small amount of funding. So we know that we need to be catalytic and very strategic in terms of how we use that money. And for many years, as de development practitioners, the temptation has been to focus on taps and toilets, to focus on the physical infrastructure, because that is what is most visible. Um, but we are increasingly pushing ourselves to flip the orientation um, around this organizing principle of self-reliance and be looking at the host country systems, uh, governance, financial flows um, that can help with the sustainability of not only the capital costs of new infrastructure, but maintaining that infrastructure over the long term. So that's just to paint out the broad context that we're responding to. Um, but I'm ex very, very excited and hopeful about what the U.S. government is doing on water and sanitation issues. Uh, the Water for the World Act, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it, but um, many of the people in this room uh, were very active uh, in the development of this piece of legislation. But this was passed in 2014, and it ensures that there will be strong U.S. leadership on water and sanitation issues globally moving forward, and that builds on a long uh, tradition and history of bipartisan support for water and sanitation foreign assistance um, as a cornerstone of the, the work that the agency does. So 2017 was a landmark year for us as an agency um, and as an interagency. The Water for the World Act requires that the U.S. government have a global water strategy in place at all times through 2032. So that, that's significant. Um, so that enables us to start thinking long term uh, with this orientation of self-reliance about how we can position ourselves uh, to build the capacity of countries to, to manage these issues into the longer term. So at USAID, we co-led a process with the Department of State uh, to put together the global water strategy uh, includes contributions from 17 different agencies. Um, and just to speak a little bit about um, some things that are new and different for us um, at the agency within this framework. Um, 
Number one, as I mentioned, we are trying to shift our orientation away from just focusing on infrastructure. We do have a core accountability uh, to provide first-time access to drinking water, to <coughs> drinking water and sanitation to vulnerable populations, but we know that we won't be successful over the long term if we aren't simultaneously thinking about the governance systems and the financial flows behind that. So we've elevated uh, dedicated focus on governance, finance, and institutions um, as part of our work there. We've also elevated sanitation <coughs> as a standalone issue on, in our strategic framework. We know that sanitation lags far behind drinking water, um, and that's absolutely something that we need to be prioritizing um, for health outcomes and then uh, most notably for women and girls and their ability to participate in the economy and in educational activities. And then just to tie it back to the, um, the broader theme of water security, we know that water resources are under increasing stress, so we've elevated water resources management as a standalone development result. And that is quite critical for us, um, not only in terms of ensuring that our drinking water investments um, are secured by a sustainable water supply, but that from a cross-sectoral standpoint, um, our investments in agriculture um, and other um, economic uses are accounting for the water resource base as well. So that's just to kind of paint a broad picture of what we are seeking to enable um, from the U.S. government um, perspective. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't note um, the transformation process that is going on within the agency right now. And I think something that's very exciting that's happening um, for the water and sanitation sector is that we are proposed to move into a new Bureau for Resilience and Food Security. And what this really means for us is that, um, so our colleagues in the food security sector have a very similar set of legislation. They have the Global Food Security Act, we have the Water for the World Act. They have the Global Food Security Strategy, we have the Global Water Strategy. So these two very large initiatives will be working alongside each other uh, in addition to <coughs> nutrition and resilience as key other centers. And there will be a new center for water security, sanitation, and hygiene um, that will really ensure that water is strongly positioned uh, within the agency moving forward. So we're quite excited about this. Um, there are a lot of strong connections um, from a technical standpoint to be made as well. Um, but just to wrap up, I wanted to give a specific example. I know that the, the theme of this panel is on urban programming. And I did mention that the, the bulk of our investments have been in rural areas in the past, um, but we are acutely aware uh, that of urbanization trends and our need to position ourselves to be able to respond to water needs uh, in urban areas, particularly um, within the context of resilience. So we have um, one of our favorite examples with this is um, a program out of the Philippines called Be Secure, where we're providing technical assistance to secondary cities throughout the Philippines on upstream climate forecasting, uh, working proactively with utilities to monitor water resources and to enable them to forecast and predict their longer-term water availability <coughs> so that they can target their investments in things like green infrastructure uh, and source development longer term. Um, and that has really been a significant kind of organizing principle for these utilities moving forward. So that's just a flavor of uh, some of the work that we're doing in urban areas. But um, looking forward to the panel and happy to, to answer any questions. Thanks, Jeff. Turn off your microphone. 
I'm going to start with a few questions. I was going to wait, but I just can't help myself. Um, also, keep, keep note the audience. We will have time at the end for you to have questions. So if you have a question, not a monologue, feel free to raise your hand at the end, and we'll get to you. Um, uh, the, two points. One, I want to say good job on collaboration between food security strategy and water strategy. That's important. It's good that that's happening. Also, just as in the food security system, we're seeing this change in, in about systems, right? And right. so thinking through the governance and the finance and the institution piece is critical than just these one-off infrastructure projects. So that's good to hear. The thing I want to ask you, and this is really for my own curiosity, when we talk about gender and empowering women and girls, I get how that works for water in the more rural settings, but talk to me a little bit about how, how, this, how water empowers women and girls in the urban settings. Great. I'm really glad you asked that. We like talking about this. So um, the typical orientation um, that has prevailed vis-a-vis -vis wash and gender, um, and it's an important one, is that women and girls do uh, bear the burden of collecting water and sanitation and are therefore precluded from participating in economic activities or in school. So that's something that's well established and um, there's a lot of evidence around that. As far as urban areas go, we have been talking about this internally a lot vis-a-vis in -vis empowerment and looking at women as professionals in the water and sanitation sector and making dedicated investments to build the capacity of utilities uh, to be supportive of opportunities for women engineers, women managers, uh, to participate in leadership roles in the water and sanitation sector, whether or not that's in service delivery, um, on the regulatory side of things. And so um, that's a body of work that we are very actively pushing. Um, there's strong precedent for that across other service delivery sectors. Uh, the agency has a project called Engendering Utilities that has done a lot of this work in the energy space. And we're very excited to be working on um, activities in this area moving forward with our energy colleagues. And I'm happy to say that we will be focusing on water um, as it relates to um, creating opportunities for women in the utility space as well. <laughs> Great. That's, a, that's an excellent answer. Thank you. Um, we're going to turn now to you, Michael. Um, I, can you start by telling us a little bit about why is urban so important in terms of water infrastructure? Why are we focusing on that rather than rural? Well, it's not necessarily, uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having, having me um, and to join this esteemed panel. Um, Sergio, Annie, it's great to be with you, Jeff. Um, also, a, a little disclaimer, I, uh, I understand we sponsored this, but I, I may not speak for the company, um, and if I get out of line, I'll be chastised later. But I, I think I spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I can help and contribute, and and I work with a small team of people that's really dedicated to that. <clears throat> and sometimes we cross the lines a little bit, but it's always um, in in, a, in the spirit of healthy debate and discussion. Um, and I uh, um, I bring that I guess to the to the to the topic myself, um, and I do think about this in terms because of my own background a lot of times in in uh, in uh, a couple of ways that I, I'll get to, um, but uh, it, a lot of it is is around the financial sustainability of what we're trying to do, and that's my bias and my lens or filter or whatever you want to call it. Um, <clears throat> but I think. Um, I don't want to say that the urban challenge is uh, competing with the rural sector, but more uh, that we have to think about water and systems, and we have to think about water as a, as Jeff has pointed out, as a 
uh, and it's included in this global strategy. We're uh, really impressed with the global strategy in terms of how we're talking about um, access and governance and financing of water because of those systems approaches and that cross-cutting uh, aspect of water. And you can call it competition between the urban and rural areas, but I think it's more about um, what is actually going on with agricultural development vis-a-vis -vis urban areas and what's happening with populations and, and growth in the countries where we work. Um, <clears throat> if you take, for example, the way the IMF looks at things, um, they have cross-matched uh, what they call the, the population dividend with the, the, the availability of a labor force in a given country, which is a huge issue in the countries where we work, regardless of their infrastructure development. Uh, huge young populations looking for work, um, whether it's in the country or in the city, and there's a lot of pressure on the cities for them to find work because there's not that much employment in the countryside, particularly as agricultural systems become more industrialized or, or um, condensed. <clears throat> but um, I, the other aspect that comes in with the IMF's view is also infrastructure, roads, water, energy, and uh, telecom and communications. And when those five things converge, you look at Southeast Asia, the rates of access which are the other sustainable development goals have hockey sticked since the population met those other pieces. So it's not necessarily the secret sauce or formula for economic success and development. There's a tremendous amount of variabilities and variations involved in that. But um, we, so what, 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 that's where I think uh, it's important to, um, you know, maybe. Uh, include more or elevate a little bit the conversation about infrastructure and urban development in relationship to uh, waters as, as a systems and then start looking at is it a water rich or water constrained situation and then getting to finance and governance why isn't it working better why aren't we achieving our SDG goals um, I, I could go on some more about a couple of other things that that kind of drive my thinking about it uh, I'll just put them out there <clears throat> I think also for me, and I share this with my colleagues at work um, and in conversations like this, um, I really do think we need to look a lot more at, in, in addition to systems thinking, um, in engaging much more at a local or regional level. And, and that's tricky because we work very often as a company with bilateral agreements and you can't really go under <laughs> the government because that would be, um, it would be bad for everybody. But I think if we can start driving the bilateral agreements to understand how we can bring systems thinking to the local government level, um, you know, if you had to be a bet betting person, that would, we'd get some better outcomes in terms of building capacity there to manage money, to run enterprises to manage utilities or to develop with water across a number of farms under a cooperative, et cetera, but to get, maybe they've been more successful in the rural areas than in the urban in terms of giving empowerment to the local uh, governance. And then finally on the, on the, which is critical to all of us, I came from the debt uh, meeting, um, how there's this savings overhang in the world um, and uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of assets that are being that are not being invested and everybody understands what the tremendous pressure is for infrastructure uh, 
investment. Um, they call it demand, but you know, from a business perspective, which I could come to later, uh, it's only it's only real demand once it's commercial demand, once somebody can pay for it. So there, but in reality, there is a tremendous amount of capital hanging in the markets and interest rates remain low, so it doesn't move, and debt continues to rise, but interest rates aren't going up, so the capital doesn't move, and it's not moving into infrastructure. <laughs> it's not in the United States, it's not moving in, the, in Africa, and it's not in Southeast Asia. It's, I think, maybe a little bit more in Latin America because they're better at, at financial, engaging the financial sector in some cases, but not, never enough. Um, so private sector engagement to me then is, is my sort of my final of the three main points that I bring to this um, is really a, about understanding what is what is it that we're talking about as a business model, um, and it's different in rural areas and it's different in in urban areas, and that it's not necessarily just private sector engagement, but it's also how does the public sector engage and how does the government de-risk investments in infrastructure with their own capital and and that gets the governance and and all the issues that we have to deal with um, a, 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 in the development economics but but the business model really for a lot of these things in infrastructure particularly in urban areas is around uh, the ability to collect uh, a small amount of money from a lot of different consumers and it's very difficult to organize that kind of demand uh, it's, it's very easy to build a power plant if you're selling the power to one buyer, but then that utility that's selling the power has to collect revenue from every little household. Same for water, same for trash collection, uh, and same for, you know, how do we manage the streets, et cetera. Um, and where do we start understanding how the public and the private sector, getting back to the basics of urban development, deal with those kinds of, of business models as opposed to things that are much easier for the private sector to engage in um, from a risk perspective. Um, so I, um, I know I went off a little bit, but I wanted, I had my, my three points, <laughs> which I wanted to get out early um, and then often come back to, but um, I, I hope I answered your question and, yeah. and thank you. You know, and the food security team here, we just did a big project on Nigeria, more looking at how the traditional US government's food security and, and um, and hunger initiative is gonna work in more fragile areas like Northeast Nigeria. And one of our major recommendations was talking about that empowering of, of local systems, right? And bringing it down to the local level and how important that is, particularly in that country, but a lot of other countries. I do want one, one follow-up question is because you've worked in clean tech, what does that mean? And what do we need? What, what is successful clean tech look like or what needs to be there for clean tech to work? I think Annie will have a lot more to say about that than I, but... I'm purposely doing that to go right into yeah, Annie. Okay. You see how that works? So, yeah. No, great. Um, well, my experience with clean tech has been... Um, it was tough. I can tell you that much. The gray hair part comes from my clean tech experience. Um, but, you know, it, it, it comes back to... Uh, I learned this sort of before with a, a startup, but... Um, it comes back to um, really, you know, uh, a little bit, not to be like a broken record, but a little bit like uh, what, what's the business model. And from clean tech, um, there, I, in, in the water space, I think it really also then comes to um, the business model and the space. It's water and energy is a huge cost, and there's a tremendous amount of innovation that can be done there that clean tech is looking at, and they are putting money at. It's kind of the Teslas of water. 
they're really trying to figure out how to get reverse osmosis to be much less energy intensive so you can desalinate seawater. Um, and then the other energy intensive water treatment process is water electrolysis, which is just, is, it's a reverse battery and you're taking heavy metals out of water, so that's wastewater treatment that can be recycled at least for industrial or commercial uses, if not potable water. So in the water scarce areas, energy is a huge cost and clean tech is moving in that area. And I was with a company that was successfully doing that. Um, on the other side, it's, uh, it's this uh, revenue. So you, know, you reduce costs, hey, I'll invest in that. Savings, capture that, I'll get my investment out in five years. Savings, uh, so revenue is like, oh yeah, big buyer, lots of demand, money, they want it, a golf, a glove to improve your golf swing. There's the cohort, there's their money, there's their income, you know, $20 million, go. Well, um, if it's back to the utility model, <laughs> it's 500,000 people in a city where everybody's poor or in informal settlements and not metered, and how are you going to ever capture that? So it's very hard to innovate on the, on the revenue side. Of clean, tech, of clean tech in this space. And when you come forward, very often you come forward with, uh, yeah, it's a revolutionary idea, it's a great idea, but I need $20 million to get started, or I need $40 million to get started, and don't worry, I'll get that revenue. And, and venture capital doesn't like that. Um, it's not soon enough, it's not fast enough. So again, it's a you know, cost, revenue, business model, um, there's really, really important things happening in the water energy nexus, and I'm sure in the food water nexus that I'm not totally aware of, um, because there's cost savings there. But um, if you can't pitch to the revenue side, then the, the, the innovation in clean tech is, is much harder to do. So, Annie, you are nodding your head a lot. Um, anything you disagree with his explanation on, on, on kind of what clean tech is? And then also tell us how do we capture technology to kind of leverage and make systems better? Thank you, and thank you for having me. I think the most important thing to address is efficiencies. And um, in, especially in places that are dealing with so much change, uh, change really has become uh, the currency that we deal with. You're either really good at dealing with change or really bad at dealing with change. And how well you can deal with change depends on the success of your outcomes. And it's very hard to run a utility, something that's very stable, in such a changing environment. So the more we can help the utilities become more efficient and more nimble, the better they're going to be. At the end of the day, most of the waste is coming in, in utilities, for example, from non-revenue water, from breaks and leaks, and, uh, and from uh, an absence of accurate fee collection. So the top two needs that we get, because we are a management operating system, they say, how can you manage more efficiently? How can you manage better? We need to be able to manage to help the utilities, the fee collection, and the non-revenue water. When you do that, it helps everything from energy to the environment uh, because you've reduced waste. But then we've, we've also we've noticed that there's something of a broken windows uh, theory at place with large utilities in especially rapid urbanization or peri-urban regions where when you arrive, you can tell if the lawn's not kept well or if, the, if there's lots of outdated computers in an office that nobody uses, that there's lots of inefficiencies here. And a lot of that stems from management. So our management includes HR, our management approach includes um, uh, buildings monitoring. We offer the ability to manage everything all together, even though the target of our management is water. 
So they, they can use the same system, and often they've been the ones to show us that, the, the target user. Uh, we, we're working on an extraction survey with uh, the MARA, with the Lake Victoria Water Basin Commission, who we just came to teach the extraction survey. When we come back a month later, they're doing HR monitoring with the same platform. They're doing facilities monitoring. They've built up hazmat monitoring. Or, um, uh, they, the, the point here is that they, they're beginning to make themselves a better target for investment by be, being better at managing everything. And it looks, it looks better to someone coming in saying, do I want to take a risk on this investment in this utility if they know where their fees are and where their non-revenue water is. So it all starts with management. The, the central core that we began with was what gets measured gets done. So let's use technology to measure really well. And if you can measure better, you can help people do it better. We can also use technological uh, advances. You know, there has been a lot of talk about blockchain today at the conference, and I'm not quite the the, the uh, believer in blockchain itself. But the the paradigm that blockchain has given us is decentralized management networks and decentralized trust in management networks. And so you can have the NGOs that only trust themselves, and the utilities that only trust themselves, and the government that only trust themselves all using their own management interface, but because, because they all share a relational database in our same cloud-based platform, they're actually working together. And, and all of this at the end of the day is catalyzing efficiency. We can do more faster. And this is the most important job that we have in aid because there's not enough official development assistance in the package to do it, what we need to do right now. If we don't find efficiencies, and technology can help give us those tech, uh, efficiencies, we can't get to where we need to do, which is when you put money in A, it turns over to B to C. You, you becomes an investment that turns over several times. And that's what an investment in management can do. That's what an investment in efficiencies monitoring can do. Yeah. Um, you know, the managing efficiency point to me also goes back to the journey to self-reliance things, you know, of building up country ownership and those capacities and making sure the entire system is taken care of. So thank you for adding on to that point. Let's go ahead and move on to Sergio. I, hearing all of this, how does it relate to what you're looking at and then specifically, you know, the Latin American and Caribbean, how, how are they doing in terms of meeting those SDG goals that we've talked about today with SDG 6? Sure. Thank you, Kimberly, and uh, good afternoon, everybody, especially those that are watching us through Streamline. I want to start by thanking the Center for organizing the forum, this particular session, uh, and for inviting us. Um, last year, the, the bank uh, led the regional process for the Americas uh, at the World Water Forum in Brasilia. Probably most of you or some of you were there. Uh, the, the Latin American, the, the Americas region, that's from Canada to, to Chile. And at the end of the forum, when we got together with the other six regions, we thought it was going to be very difficult to come up with uh, same challenges, but it, it was actually not very difficult. And the four main challenges are, in terms of the SDGs, we're behind. The second one is financing is not materializing in the way it should to achieve the SDG by 2030. The third one was that uh, floods and droughts, climate change, is going to make it even harder to mm. achieve them. Uh, and the fifth one was that if we do not strength, strengthen local governments, we won't get there. No? I mean, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the world is being urbanized. Latin America is already f 
from 80 to 85 percent urbanized. No? Mm -hmm. So those were the, 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 the four challenges. And in Latin America, I'm just going to echo them. No? Latin America is a region uh, comparatively rich in terms of water resources. We have one third of the fresh water resources, the largest aquifer, the largest water reserves. Uh, we have one seventh of the population. And our economy runs on water. Uh, most of our exports, either uh, agricultural or mineral dependent, they, they depend on abundant and uh, reliable sources of water. 70% uh, of our electricity, 70% comes from hydropower generation. Uh, so water is critical for, for our economy. Uh, yet at the same time, water security, it's been an issue for, our, uh, for the well-being of our population. Over the last uh, three years or four, more than a dozen cities have been affected by uh, shortages of electricity, shortages of water, and in some places we haven't even seen increases in the food prices. So, uh, and the, the, the thing is that this situation is only going to get worse in Latin America. There are more than 140 cities, medium cities, that are growing twice or three times faster than the mega cities, like. Uh, Mexico City, Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, and at that rate in 20 years, their population will more than double. No? So water security critical not only for our economy, but uh, for, our, for the well-being of our population. And uh, droughts and floods that are more intense and more frequent affecting uh, not only our economy, but, but the well-being of our population. The thing with Latin America is that at, uh, as, op as opposed to other areas, we won't be water stressed in 100 years. When you look at water availability, we'll have more or less the same amount of water. The problem is that it's going to rain in smaller periods, and droughts are going to be even, even longer. No? So, uh, so what, what are we doing about it? No? Uh, and I think that uh, first is access, because when you look at the amount of people that don't have uh, access to water with the MDG lens, we were 30 34 million people short of uh, access to adequate water. But when you look at drinkable water, we're more than 200 million people without access to drinkable water. Uh, that's almost one third of the Latin American population. When you look at this uh, access to sanitation, with the MDG lens, we were 106 million people without access to adequate sanitation. But when you look at adequate slash management, uh, we're more than 450 million people without a, a adequate uh, slash management. Uh, that's almost two-thirds of Latin American population. Uh, we're treating less than 20% of the wastewater we, we generate with a tremendous impact in, uh, in our environment. So those are, the, those are the challenges in terms of numbers, in terms of access. Therefore, access, is, it, it has to be a priority. Uh, and as, was, as it was mentioned by, I think, by Michael, uh, uh, if we continue doing the, uh, the same way we've been doing, uh, we're probably going to reach the SDGs in 100 years. I mean, that, that's a projection that we have, no? So we really need to do uh, a paradigm shift. We, we need to stop doing business as usual. Uh, Innovation is critical unless we innovate, unless, unless we bring financial innovation, technical innovation, social innovation into our sector, we won't be able to bridge this gap in a, in a shorter period of time. Decentralized sanitation, container-based sanitation, uh, intermittency need to be part of the short-term solution. Uh, Natural-based solutions need to also help us address the resilience of our, of our infrastructure. Uh, we need to not only uh, source the amount of funding that is going to be necessary, 
Uh, we were estimated that to meet the MDGs, we needed $107 billion. To achieve the SDGs, we need at least four times that amount of money. Uh, if we want to get there by 2030, those, that amount of resources needs to be secured within the next five years. Otherwise, we won't be able to make it. So we need to make efforts in financing. But financing and building the infrastructure, it's not all you need to operate and maintain. There are people that cannot afford the, the, the services, so tariffs and subsidies are an important part of the equation. In terms of strengthening local governments, most of the utilities, not only Latin America but in the world, are subject to political um, to the political cycles. Not the most technical people are in charge of, of this, so governance is it's, it's also an important issue. Unless we go into innovation, uh, we won't bridge the gap. Uh, that's the, the biggest window in the water and sanitation for the private sector, because innovation is coming through the private sector. Uh, and, and finally, we need to work in water security. We need to pro uh, protect and our, our, our water resources. Uh, we need to go into conservation uh, and invest in, in natural capital uh, solutions. So, Sergio, you talked about the need for, I like the way you framed it, technical, finance, and social innovation to tackle this problem. I, I want to challenge Annie, and then I'll see if the others have a question, too. I want to make this on a more of a positive spin. It's also negative sometimes. So I'm going to start with you, Annie, but like besides M water, of course, can you give us an example of where you've seen, pick one of those categories, maybe all three, but like what technical, financial, or social innovation have you seen that's been a success and maybe even been scaled? Thinking more technology on the scaling, but still. I really like the question because in, in my experience in aid, we really misunderstand even scale and, and I try to be really clear to describe the difference between spread and scale. And if you do twice as much for twice the money, that's not scale, that's spread. And aid is really good at spread. And we're trying to focus on scale. Technology is really good at scale. Once I create this feature for this organization, it costs me nothing to make it free to the world. That's actually my business model. The, the, the thing that we like to see, and so the, the, the tradition of technology that now unfortunately has some bad connotations given some negative things that have happened in social media, but the tradition is move fast and break things, right? So but what that really means is take more risks. And uh, we want to see people take more risks and try to move really fast, try to be able to pivot fast to uh, find out this doesn't work, we're going to pivot. And actually whenever you go back and, and look into some of uh, China's development, they moved fast and, and did a move fast and break things at a local regional, uh, local to regional level uh, there as well. So I'd say that you know, the book um, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap is a very good discussion of that. In finances, we like uh, one of our partners, Water.org, is also taking this different, very, uh, let's change, let's break the way we're financing aid by by trying to do this, if you spend it once, how many times can we make it turn over before that dollar is gone from the system approach? That is honestly our, our favorite approaches are people that make sure that it's not the old fashioned view of aid where you design a start and stop date. It should keep going as many times as possible without you being there to keep it running. That's the definition of a system is that it keeps going ongoingly, right? So we, in, in systems thinking itself, we hope that people are moving from a donor paradigm to an investor paradigm, that I'm starting this thing going, I'm investing in this thing beginning, as opposed to I'm giving money for this to get done. 
Jeff, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue. Um, I think that when we talk about, so I'm going to answer it from the lens of financing. I think a lot of the framing is in terms of lack or gaps, um, and you know that serves an important advocacy tool as as an advocacy tool because it you know, frames the scale of the problem. But I've been really encouraged over the last two to three years about kind of the sea change that seems to be happening across the board in the sector writ large uh, to move away from uh, looking at individual projects and infrastructure. I mean, there are, of course, limitations in terms of how we do business as a donor. Um, but I've seen that there's really been this embrace uh, writ large to address some of the kind of core bottlenecks within the sector. So um, water and sanitation, kind of getting back to a lot of what Sergio was talking about, the, the bread and butter um, governance issues at the utility level that would make a project bankable um, or investable. So we have been investing uh, in a very dedicated way with a central project uh, managed under the water office called Water Sanitation and Hygiene Financing where we are deploying technical assistance across eight countries now uh, to build the just fundamentals of utility performance to be able to attract longer-term financing. And so I, I think it's a very exciting phase to be in, in that we're looking at our aid as a, um, in a catalytic way to be able to fix um, some of the inefficiencies that exist in the sector. And they, they really are um, tried and true things. These aren't new um, problems that we're trying to to fix when we talk about management in non-revenue water. But to the extent that we are able to fix those, we'll be able to switch the orientation and be able to attract far more private finance, um, where which other infrastructure sectors have done quite successfully that are able to collect more revenues and address these types of inefficiencies. So I, I do think that even though we are framing things in terms of lack of finance, that has actually served as a very useful um, kind of point of departure in terms of how we should be changing how we approach these issues. I want to go ahead and turn to the audience. I know we have some mic runners probably at the back. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand. We have one right up here. Um, when you speak, um, remember we have an online audience, so please um, state your name and where you're from. If you have a question towards a specific person, that's fine. Or if you have a question for everybody to answer, that's fine too. And go ahead and stand up. Thanks. I'm Rick Kelting from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, there was a lot of discussion about innovation especially, but also risk-taking and how we sort of integrate those issues more into this whole process. And I'll preface this by saying I'm an engineer and I've worked in engineering organizations and I've worked in non-engineering organizations and engineering organizations and engineers themselves, speaking as one, don't tend to be risk takers or often innovators. So how do we change that? I think we have to start with education, but there's probably other, I'd like to hear other people's thoughts on that. Thank you. We'll take a couple more. There's one right over there. Thanks, Chris. Great. 
Uh, thanks, everybody, for a great panel. John Oldfield with Global Water 2020. Um, Annie, you, you mentioned something about sort of leveraging every dollar that goes into the sector, channeling it back in and getting the most utility out of it. You know, I wonder, and, and Jeff just mentioned WASHFIN, the, the USAID mechanism that could and maybe should be doing that, or maybe the next iteration of WASHFIN. But Sergio, you know, for you as well, is, is there a conversation amongst you about a, a revolving fund for an oversimplified term to do exactly that? at a global, regional, national, even a sub-national level in some of these larger countries. Seems like a great idea. I'm not quite sure how to do it or you know, what the role of monitoring and mapping is in that context. Thank you. Thanks. And out of my own curiosity, what is Global Water 2020? A uh, small nonprofit advocacy group here in Washington, D.C., half a block away. <laughs> Thank you. Um, any other questions from the audience? Yeah, in the back over there. Hi, uh, Nagin Sabani with the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, forgive me, I came in a little late because I have FOMO and I'm trying to get a little bit of all the sessions, but next door they were actually talking about resiliency. And I caught um, Mr. Campos's comment about that, so I was curious, especially with the work we do at the academies on Resilient America and turning it to a more global perspective, um, the role of resiliency and specifically mitigation of risks um, as part of these sustainable water infrastructures, if anybody could speak to that. Thank you. I think we could take one more with this bucket. Any, anyone else? Yeah, let's go right on up here. I saw your hand first. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Eagles uh, Milbergs. I'm a co-founder of a nonprofit in Seattle uh, called Pure Blue. And what we work on is helping entrepreneurs start water companies. So I have a pretty simple question. We currently have a portfolio of 12 small startup companies, but how do they best engage in this global development marketplace? How do they connect? They typically don't have a lot of resources to understand the market or to spend time developing that market. I'm just wondering what the pathway might be for companies that are early stage. It's a great question. All right, so to answer, we're going to start with you, Sergio, in the end. Um, and panelists, address whichever questions pertain to you or that um, hasn't already been addressed you want to add to what other people said. Sergio, go ahead. Feel free to cut me off because okay. I, can, I, can, I can speak forever. No, you have uh, sure. Thank you. Uh, in terms of innovation, the question that was raised by the gentleman and, and, and how to foster that, we always think of public utilities as these two groups in which there are elephants and rabbits. You know, being the elephants, the wastewater treatment plant. You know, because if you build already a waste treatment plant, what do you what do you innovate there? You no, know? I mean it's there for. 20 to 30, even if you operate it and maintain well for four years. No? So yes, innovation probably doesn't take place in infrastructure that has been already developed. <clears throat> but yet at the same time, you have the other area, which is the commercial area, the non-water reduction, the water loss reduction, uh, the automatization of the networks, the building, the collection, and the customer engagement, which, I mean, if you don't innovate, I mean, you're, you're going to be uh, not providing probably good service. No, um, If there's a repair and then you manage the repair through a picture, through a cell phone, you can better uh, define the team that is going to go and fix that repair vis-a-vis -vis if you do it in the old fashion, you first need to send the crew, find out what's happening and then come back. So innovation will lead you to more efficiency. Not everything in a public utility can be innovated. 
uh, in the long run, everything will be innovated. Uh, so I, I think we, there are areas in public utilities in which innovation should take place. And if, we, and if it doesn't take place, uh, the service won't be very efficient. In regards to the pathway for, for those entrepreneurs, I think that the, the World Banks, the African Development Banks, uh, the, the Inter-American Development Bank has, this, has a role in terms of fostering and connecting those innovators uh, with where the problems are, so that these ideas can, can, can flow in the, in the right direction. I don't think we're doing a good job. I think that we're trying to do it, but, uh, but all of us are preparing better to, to do that. No? Uh, and in terms of the, the finance question, uh, how to unlock finance, uh, I think that uh, also the, I, I, in, that, in that end, I think that the governments have a lot of responsibility to do. No? There are a lot of ways in which governments can foster, enhance, and uh, send incentives to the, to, the, to the pension funds or to the impact investors uh, to allocate those resources, prov providing that in, in the market in certain facilities. Um, and in regards to the role of uh, resilience, what we see is that in Latin America we have vast uh, natural capital, uh, and instead of doubling the size of the collector or the network to be resilient for 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 floods, uh, we should probably use better our our, our nature-based capital through nature-based solutions, so that we don't have to go into that heavy investment. Um, that's one way, <clears throat> and the and the other way is uh, for the for the mo for the for the most part we've tried we've tried to get rid of the storm water into the oceans, when in reality, uh, that's, that's, that's non-salty water that could be better used for irrigation or for other purposes, no? And, and without going into the cliche world of the circular economy, but, but that's what we really need to start thinking and that's what we need, we need to start doing. You did a great job. That wasn't too much at all. <laughs> Annie, what do you think? So we'll begin with resilience. I, a good example right now is the cyclone that has just impacted uh, the, um, the, the southeastern African countries. It is the worst natural disaster to hit the southern hemisphere this year for sure and, and for quite some time. An 845 square mile inland sea opened up over the space of Malawi and Mozambique. And in this time, we were fortunate in a way that in advance of it, the government of Malawi had embraced our management system so very much that they had made it their operating system for their water sector. And when the, uh, when the emergency happened then, they needed to do very rapid assessment of which wells, Malawi is mostly rural, so which wells were contaminated by flood water and then quickly Shot, uh, send out instructions to shock chlorinate those wells to make them safe to the people and do this so fast that you could avoid the seven-day cycle from flood to cholera outbreak. And because they had a management infrastructure in place and the ability to talk to people in a management way of sending surveys and forms and assignments to each other through smartphones and to communicate through cloud-based communications to a central management uh, uh, supervisor, be it regionally or, or in the government, 
they were able to respond really fast to the natural emergency. They were able to send out instructions as soon as one of the surveys said, yes, this is, this is a contaminated well, they were able to send a ticket and assignment right away to a mechanic saying, here's, to, the, here's the recipe for shock chlorination and do this. So this communication network that was set up, this management network that was set up was a resiliency for the natural disaster in the case of Malawi. We, we, we think that circling into the, the agenda uh, that was spoken about very well today of make sure you work yourself out of a job, we think that that's the pathway. We think that our business model itself is a great way for other people to look at an exit strategy because I don't get any money for what just happened in Malawi, but they'd used my platform to do it. And we, great, we, we greatly increased their, their capacity we, but it wasn't something that they were dependent on or there was some grant that needed to keep paying me for them to keep using the platform to do it. And that's the kind of business model and strategies that we need to think of, that, that my team is supporting 158, uh, a, a user base in 158 countries around the world. There's nine of us. You know, we, we were able to scale from three countries to 27 to 54 in, our, in, in six years. We started last year in 123, and now we're in 158, and my budget didn't really change. This is, this is what technology can give us, the ability to scale and the ability to achieve efficiencies. And, and so these are engineering uh, teams that are doing this. I, I would say that what's different is we put them in a different engineering management paradigm, and this is called lean and agile, and this is what technology can give us, is a lean and agile management paradigm to be what is lean and agile done for every industry, for entertainment, for banking, to be rapidly uh, uh, changeable, to be nimble, to, to be more porous to flows of information in and out of your organization, to be more collaborative with other uh, organizations. We like to say collaboration is the new competition because in the technology sector, if you're interoperable, you're stronger. And so we try to bring these principles from technology, even though we are an NGO in the aid sector, to do aid better. So. I'm going to get a shirt that says collaboration is the new competition. Yeah. <laughs> That's really nice. Okay, Michael, what do you think? Um, well, there's a lot to think about here, um, but I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, we kind of get the momentum of the, of the conversation going and, and what's been said so far. I think we're, we're kind of getting back to something really interesting um, around systems thinking and problem solving and engineering and risk. I'll start there. We'll try and keep this as brief as possible, but there was a lot of, of good thinking and questions here. I mean, uh, Engineering and risk, uh, in fact, I don't want engineers to, <laughs> to take too much risk, <laughs> given civil works and everything else that we live on day to day and assume is, is just going to happen. Um, but we walk down the street and we look around and it's because of engineering that we have billion dollars per acre in this country that we can leverage and build other things with. So you don't, engineers don't have to do risk, but maybe think about um, problem solving in a way that shares risk and helps us alleviate it. And that's, that's sort of buzzwords around doing development differently and problem, um, uh, what do they call it, problem-driven iterative adaptation. There's all kinds of theories about it, but what I think what we're talking about is problem solving rather than throwing money at something. But I'm, I get in trouble at the dinner table talking about fecal sludge management now. <laughs> and my kids are like, no, no, no. And I'm like, yeah, no, we need the engineers to overbuild the wastewater treatment plants. So we can drink the water and then, you know, and nobody talks about it. All those adolescent jokes are actually really, really important. <laughs> um, 
and the engineers we rely on for that. But I think bringing the engineers into a conversation about about that, and, and, the, and there's a, immediate examples that we, one of our projects in Egypt, fantastic plant, um, state-of-the-art uh, design of, of, of water supply systems, but we didn't get the engineers involved in looking at the distribution systems and they couldn't take the pressure because they were built during the Napoleonic period in Egypt, and they all busted, or there were leaks, or it, you know, it created a problem that caused costs later, and if we didn't, if we had had engineers looking at the whole system again, we could have avoided some costs on, a, on an aid project in that, in that regard. Um, and then um, I could go on about that, but I think that was my main point was around the problem solving and engineering and risk. Um, on resiliency, we think about it as most people do, I think about sort of getting through shocks and, and, um, and I think about it in terms of um, those stresses and shocks like uh, on the infrastructure or on people or populations or agriculture. And, and um, you know, we've, we've worked in, in Mozambique on early warning systems and improved infrastructure and housing to take coastal uh, typhoons better. Um, not, not, that was in the coastal area, unfortunately, that really Mozambique suffered horribly in the last typhoon. But some of the early warning systems that came through um, commodics projects, um, USAID projects uh, that helped contribute to early warning systems that probably saved some lives. So, you know, it's, that's, that's not enough, but that's beginning to get there. And a gentleman from Columbia talked about a fund that they have established with the government backing. Again, I think there's a lot of things to look for in, in Latin America um, and what we could do elsewhere. Uh, a contingency fund, which is um, essentially uh, uh, covering assets, public and private assets, that are subject to, to unforeseen catastrophes. They're, in, they're doing earthquakes, but they're gonna move into climate change as well. And clearly with hydro and other contingent liabilities, the government has a big role to play on resilience and infrastructure. Um, I'll, I'll leave the, the private, the, well, my one comment about the, you know, what, how do we bring technologies to the emerging markets is, you know, I, I, I wanna, um, I, I suggest you go to the countries. <laughs> and and if, a, if, a, if somebody has a really good idea and it can solve a problem there, go there, is kind of my advice. Having been in clean tech before, but I was, I, I did feel like um, putting risk of new technologies on the, on the benefit of people that we're trying to help is a good idea, but the fundamental model of the new venture should be that it would come there after it's kind of proven itself out. So anyway, that's, I think, it, and, and we do that in development. We do, we do try and create local capital venture capital, we try and invite um, uh, startups to come to, uh, on behalf of donors to come and present and join up with local businesses to introduce how their technology in a way that um, can help the, that local population or that particular problem, because I've always seen these innovations as, as solving problems. I think there is innovation to do though in, in even in this 50 year infrastructure. Uh, if you look at DC water here, they're selling organic compost. They call them a lot of wastewater treatment plants in the in the in developed economies call themselves energy resource centers now, and they're reducing their energy load with ultraviolet systems. Uh, they're making biogas. They're selling compost, or they're using the solid waste as an energy source. So the circular economy can actually 
um, you know, again, it will need a public uh, component to it if there is a 30-year payback or if it's linked to the revenues of a 50-year infrastructure. But I think innovation on the technology and engineering side um, um, can 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 come into that uh, into that er that sector as well. Um, whether in that sense, it was back to my original point. It's then yours it really is it, it, it's about savings. And, and, and that and efficiency and that can make the it reduces the risk so people can move forward and engineering has a big role to play in that. I know I was bouncing around a lot, but I'll leave the revolving fund loan alone. We need them. <laughs> that's all I can say. Um, you know, EPA has a revolving fund and that's why we have the wonderful wastewater treatment plants that we have all over this country because EPA puts out a tr billions of dollars a year to upgrade our water treatment systems. Not always successful, as we know. It's, it's a global problem. It's not a north-south problem. Um, but uh, without those, we wouldn't have the, the, the infrastructure that we have. Thank you, Michael. Jeff, you have the final word, so make it good. Wow. <laughs> so I will be brief. Um, maybe I'll just pick up on, just keep the order going on that point that John made about the revolving funds. and. Um, you certainly agree that there is a lot to learn from the U.S. model um, and state-level uh, revolving funds, but I did just want to um, kind of push back with a slight nuance in that oftentimes when we talk about financing, I feel like the propensity is inst instantly to go to how can we structure funds to get more money. Um, and I would say that the, the problem is not one of money. It's a lack of bankable projects. So. Um, the temptation is always there uh, to talk about the funding side of the equation, and we absolutely do need to be thinking about that, but absent working on some of just the fundamentals on efficiencies within the sector, um, we will not have projects to finance. And so I think that that has just um, served as a useful orientation in terms of the prioritization of how we approach these, these issues and certainly dovetails with the broader self-reliance agenda that the, is the policy framework that we're operating within um, in the agency. So certainly um, we are keyed into looking at the U.S. experience in revolving funds, but definitely want to make sure that we are um, prioritizing the performance of service providers such that they are able to absorb and use those funds over the longer term. On the innovation question, um, I loved the, the comments of my, my previous panelists. It made me think that I almost wish we could innovate how we talk about innovation in a way, um, <laughs> in the sense that um, you know, I do think that there absolutely is a role for emerging technology um, and definitely something that needs to be in actively incorporated into what we're doing. That said, though, uh, process innovations and data um, and how we do business um, I think the, the work that MWater is doing with uh, management information systems and crowdsourcing data for uh, national governments and regional governments and utilities to be able to use in a highly efficient and light touch way is an incredible innovation. I just think the, the vernacular and kind of how we talk about innovation doesn't always um, lend itself to be inclusive of those process type um, innovations. So, I would just offer that up as something that um, we are actively committed to looking at. Uh, I think that transcends, um, or transfers rather, over into um, different business models. Um, in Senegal right now, there's just this pro proliferation of different private operators working on uh, sanitation, service delivery, and specifically the fecal sludge management side of the equation. Um, 
and being able to safely collect and transport waste and looking at the, those business models, but importantly, making sure that we're interfacing with government so that there's a supportive regulatory environment to be able to, um, to scale those types of innovations is something that we are definitely committed to, uh, to looking at within USAID. On just the, the issue of startups, um, I think an, another um, exciting thing that is coming out of the agency right now is a revamping of our um, acquisitions and assistance strategy. We are placing a strong premium on co-creation and opening ourselves up throughout the procurement cycle to be able to talk to new partners um, much more proactively. So whereas in the past, you know, we have had RFPs and RFAs coming out and people are just responding to those. Uh, there is a dedicated call and if you haven't read it, um, encourage everyone to look at our new acquisitions and assistance strategy because that will be informing how uh, we go about engaging new partners. And so just wanted to note that we are absolutely committed to co-creating and collaborating. Uh, just get that. Um, don't remember the exact aphorism, but we've got to get that on a t-shirt. Collaboration is the new competition. There it is. <laughs> yeah. And then just to end on the point with um, resilience and infrastructure, um, this is, I think, an exciting part of the transformation um, and the center, the forthcoming Center for Water Security, Sanitation, and Hygiene being under the auspices of the new Bureau for Resilience and Food Security is that resilience will be kind of the organizing approach to uh, all of the sectors working in that new bureau. So um, it's already existing agency policy that we do climate risk uh, screening of all new projects and activities. So any new infrastructure or water and sanitation activity has to go through a climate risk screening process. Um, but we have actually been engaging in really fruitful conversations um, throughout this process that many of the shocks and stresses um, that are becoming more acute are water related, so droughts, floods. Um, and so this needs to not just be incorporated into water programming, but across the board from a multi-sectoral standpoint. So I think that there are a lot of opportunities uh, to be looking not only at resilience as an organizing principle relative to water infrastructure, but how the underlying water shocks and stresses in droughts and floods uh, impact uh, work across agriculture, nutrition, health, education, all of it. So um, that is something that we are very proactively looking at. And there's a strong um, evidence base for success in that, um, as that realm as well. We often talk a lot about um, there had been a long standing assumption that to work in areas of recurrent humanitarian crises and to really start doing development work there was just too hard and something that we shouldn't be doing. Um, but our work in northern Kenya, we talk about quite often as uh, a strong success story through our partnership for resilience and economic growth of bringing all sectors um, together under the auspices of a coordinating entity called the PREG, the Partnership for Resilience and Economic Growth, to coordinate across the board um, nutrition, natural resources management, livestock and rangeland management, and water and sanitation. And you know the real positive impact that we are seeing is that as recurrent droughts continue, uh, the most recent drought in 2017, um, as compared to a drought in 2011, we saw 500,000 people uh, in need of, not in need of humanitarian assistance as compared to in 2011. So there is uh, strong evidence for bringing these sectors together under the auspices of resilience and pushing ourselves to do development programming in areas where we thought, um, or it has previously been assumed that we could only be doing humanitarian work. So. Um, just another thought to, to end on there on the resilience point. 
Thank you so much, Jeff and Michael and Annie and Sergio. This has been a fun conversation. Um, I just want to point out, because they're there, I want you to turn around and look at Carmen and Chris, because they, under Dan's leadership, and Dan is back there too, are, are the reason this whole thing got put together. So as we do our final applause, because this is the end of the Global Development Forum as well, let's be really loud so next door wonders what's happening. And let's really thank our panelists, but also Dan and his team for putting on such a great day. Thank you so much. <laughs>